Section 11 of Northern Trails, Book 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Melissa Jean. Northern Trails, Book 2 by William J. Long. Part 1 of Where the Salmon Jump. A glorious salmon river, unnamed but not unknown to the few Newfoundland fishermen who have explored the rugged east coast, comes singing and shouting down through the woods and leaps hilariously over Copswagen, the jumping place. Below the falls, the river roars and tumbles among the great rocks, spreads a little into numerous channels of rushing white water, gathers again into a strong, even, rippling current, full of crinkly yellow lights, rolls through a huge pool sedately, and then goes shouting down the rapids to another fall. Birds are singing to the swelling buds, the wind rustles among the new leaves and hums steadily in the spruce tops, the air quivers to the rhythmic throbbing of the falls, a deep organ peal rolls up from the rapids. But all these sounds and subtle harmonies are but beats of the sleeping woods, for listen, over all broods the unbroken silence of the wilderness. Just below the falls, where the torrent spreads into hurrying white channels, a man with a salmon rod is standing on a flat rock that juts into the current. All the bright sunny morning he has been standing there, his ears full of bird and river music, his eyes full of the rushing foam and sunlight of the river, his heart brimful of all that is good in the wilderness. A couple of salmon, little nine-pounders, lie on a shaded mossy bank, where Noel sits smoking his pipe. Now and then the Indian quietly advises trying a pool lower down, and the advice is good, because the river is full of salmon, and down below, where they have not seen the fly, they will come up with a rush at anything. Here they have already grown shy from seeing the little jock Scott sweeping over the foam, followed by the terrific rushes of two captured salmon and of three more that broke away gloriously. But it is only a small part of fishing to catch fish, and the man finds it perfect where he is, thinking it better fun to locate one good salmon and entice him to rise, rather than go below and catch or lose a dozen. So he stands quietly on the jutting rock, watching the river, listening to the music. So long has he stood there, following the swing and jump of his little fly in the boiling current, that the rushing movement has got into his eyes, producing a curious illusion that every salmon fisher will recognize. Not only the river, but the shores themselves seem sweeping along to keep pace with the hurrying flood. The big log that bridges the stream below the falls is running swiftly away, and after it come the white sheet and thunder of the waterfall trying to catch it. The green banks and bushes scud away like clouds before the wind. Even the great solid rock underfoot joins the swift, unsteady procession, and down we all go, trees, rocks, and river, swaying, jumping, singing, and shouting together on a glorious chase through the wilderness. In the midst of the rush and tumult, the clear, sweet song of Killulit, the white-throated sparrow, follows us, as if he were saying, Goodbye, friend fisherman, fisherman, fisherman. And spite of all the apparent uproar of rocks and river, the exquisite little melody sounds in our ears as clearly as if Killulit were singing behind our tent in the twilight stillness. The man's head grows dizzy with the delusion, his foothold at best is none too steady over the rushing torrent, so he closes his eyes to bring back the reality of things. And the reality must be good indeed, judging by the way his soul, like a wind-touching harp, is thrilling to the melody of woods and waters. As he opens his eyes again, there is a sudden plunge on the edge of the farthest white rush of water. A huge salmon tumbles into sight, showing head and shoulders, and a foot of broad blue back that makes the man's nine-pounders look like smelts in a cod-trap. "'Dust a feller, big o' big one,' says Noel, straightening his back, and instantly the slender rod gets into action. The fly falls softly across the current, 
swings down with the flood, and fetches up beautifully at the end of a straight leader, just over the spot where the water humped itself as the big salmon went down. Like a flash, he boils up at the lure, throwing his big shoulders out of the foam in his rush. But the fly swings nearer, and hangs skittering on the surface. Miss him dat time, says Noel, with immense disappointment. And the man draws in his line, and sits down on the rock to let the big salmon settle into his sunken eddy, and forget what he saw when his head came out of the water. While we are waiting for him to grow quiet, resting him, the salmon fishermen call it, let us find out, if we can, what he is doing here, and why he halts so long in the midst of all this turmoil, while his instincts are calling him steadily up the river to the quiet shallows where his life began. First look down into the water, there at your feet, where the river is running swiftly but smoothly over the yellow pebbles near shore. Nothing but smiles, dimples, and crinkly yellow lights, whirling and changing ceaselessly, as if the river here were full of liquid sunshine. Look again, curve a hand on either side of your eyes to shut out the side lights, and look steadily just below that round yellow stone under its three feet of crinkly sunshine. At first you see nothing, your eyes being full of the flashing surfaces and the dimpling lights and shadows of the yellow flood. Suddenly, as if a window were opened in the river, you see a vague, quivering outline. Did he just come? Is he gone again? Not at all, he is right there. Look again. Another long look, again the impression of a window opened, and now you see a salmon plainly. He's lying there, with his nose in a sunken eddy, resting quietly while the river rolls on over him. You see his shining silver sides, the blue tint on his back, the black line of a net on his head, the tail swaying rhythmically, every line of the splendid fish as in a clear photograph. Then, as if the window were suddenly shut, you see nothing but dancing yellow lights. The fish has vanished utterly, and you must look again and again, waiting till the lights and dimples run away together, and there is your salmon, lying just where he was before, nor has he moved except for the lazy swaying of his broad tail and the balancing of his fins, while the lights above hid him from your eyes. When looking for salmon, as with other good things in life, the eye is easily confused by a multitude of little unimportant things close at hand. Standing on the same rock, Noel will point out a score of salmon where you see nothing because changing lights and dimples. It is not because his eyes are stronger or keener than yours, for they would fail in a week if they had your work to do, but simply because he has learned to look through the intermediate superficialities for the better thing that he is seeking. Where your eye sees only ripples and flashes, his eye disregards these things and finds the big salmon lying just below them. Climb into the tree there, the big spruce leaning out over the water. Now the surface lights have lost their power over your eyes, and you can see clearly to the river's bed. There, close beside the one salmon that you glimpsed for a moment, a dozen more are lying. Above and below they sprinkle the river, each one lying with his nose behind a stone and catching the current's force on his fins in such a way that the flood, which would sweep him away, is made to hold him in position without conscious effort, just as a seagull soars against the wind. Look out now at the white rush where the big salmon just plunged at my fly. He is not there, and you wonder if the shining leader or the sight of the swaying rod has scared him away. Now let your eye follow the current a little way. There, ten feet below, where the foam ceases, a monster salmon is lying behind a stone under a smooth run of water. As you look, he darts forward like a ray of light, and you lose him for an instant. Then he plunges out just where you saw his first great rise. In a moment he sweeps back again and rounds up into his own eddy, lightly, gracefully, as a sloop rounds up to her mooring. There is something in his mouth, 
a leaf perhaps, or a big black and yellow butterfly, but the next moment he shoots it out, as one would blow a cloud of smoke. The current seizes it, crumples it, and sends it down, spreading and quivering like a living thing into the next eddy. Instantly another salmon flashes into sight, catches the leaf with a whirl and plunge, holds it in his mouth a moment, and then blows it out again. That's what they are doing, just playing with pretty little things that come skipping and dancing down the river, as your fly came at the end of its invisible leader. Half an hour ago they were asleep, or utterly indifferent to all your flies and delicate casting. Now the queer mood is on them again, and they will take anything you offer. But wait a moment, here comes a fish hawk. Ismax, on set wings, comes sailing gently down the river. He shears off with a sharp chwee, and circles twice as he notices us in the treetop. But in a moment he is scanning the water again. From his height, his keen eyes see every fish in the river, but they are all too large and too deep under the swift water. Later, when the run of grill sea comes in, he will be able to pick up a careless one, but now he just looks over the river, as if it were his own preserve, and circles back to the lake where his nest is. When he brings his little ones down here to fish, you will see them at first whirling low over the water, all excitement at seeing so many big salmon for the first time. But the ripples and the dancing lights bother their eyes, just as they do yours. And then you will hear Ismax whistling them up higher where they can see better. End of section 11